Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Barb McQuaid, and this week, Joyce, Kim, Jill, and I will be taking a look at sexism and the obstacles facing Neera Tandon. We'll break down the tactics being used to suppress voter turnout and harm our democracy before giving you the latest developments with the new George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And as usual, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. This week, we're going to actually start with some kernels of good news. There's a lot of heavy stuff in the news. So, Kim, tell us something nice that has happened to you this week. Well, Barb, the best news for me this week is that members of my family are starting to get doses of the vaccine, which has been so exciting. My parents both are going to get their second doses next week. Some of my siblings have gotten doses And it's just such good news to me after a year of worrying so much about this and worrying about the vaccine and and how the the infrastructure was set up and whether we we'd all have access to it. Having the people that I love get vaccinated has been wonderful news for me. What about you, Joyce? You know, my news is the same, Kim. Not only has my husband had his first dose of the vaccine, he's a judge. So in his courtroom, he, he actually has to see people. But my mom, um, who's got a medical condition and is in a nursing home, has now received both doses of the vaccine. We haven't been able to see her for over a year now. Her nursing home is one of the ones that shut down right away, and they've done a really great job of of protecting their, their patients. But we are really hoping to get to see her soon. Jill, what about you? I hate to repeat, but my good news was that I got my second dose And I'm feeling really good that one in 10 Americans now have at least one dose and 1.67 million people are getting vaccinated every day. And just to add something new, I want to say I love diving. And so there's another bit of good news. Coral reefs are actually improving. The Gulf of Mexico's largest coral reef just got 200% bigger. So there is some good news this week. And what about you, Barb? Well, um, I'll join the chorus of COVID vaccines. My mother got hers too, and I'm feeling very good about that. But aside from that, you all know that I am a big sports fan, and I have been really enjoying watching my Michigan Wolverines succeed on the basketball court. They've been playing great. They had a 23-day hiatus because of COVID-19, and they're back, and they're playing well. And um, I believe I control their destiny by my choice (laughs) of seat, you know, as we all have these things. When I sit on my lucky couch, they are undefeated. And so... It's a blessing and a curse because although I love the power of controlling their destiny, it means I have to stay in that couch all the time and I have to be there at game time. So it's a lot of pressure on me, but I'm, I'm doing my part to, to help. So, Barbara, I have to say that my husband is an FSU alum and they're ranked, I think, number one in basketball. So we might have to have a side bet going here. All right. We'll see you on the court. We'll let them do their talking uh, on the court. Barb is well, nothing if not vicious about sports. Yeah, well, well, we'll carry on that conversation another day. Um, well, let's get into it. Jill, I know you wanted to talk about Neera Tandon and, and sexism. Um, you know, she, of course, is uh, facing confirmation as director of uh, OMB. What What are your thoughts about that? So I, I think that it's important for our audience to know that um, now that Congress has turned his attention to confirming the cabinet, normally the president gets whoever he wants. And so the first real opposition has come to Neera Tandon, and many people are saying that it's based on sexism. It's not based on her qualifications. Everybody kind of acknowledges that she is 
qualified for the job she's been nominated for, and that it's really because of what I'm going to quote, mean tweets from her. So first of all, it seems to me that hypocrisy is really at um, active here because Republicans never said anything about all the mean tweets from Donald Trump and many of his enablers. So I think that there is hypocrisy, but I also do think the double standard comes into play here in terms of her being female. And women can say certain things, but they can't say others. And it's something I learned a long time ago in trial work, is you cannot be too tough or you're considered a, I guess, I don't know if I can say the word, but it begins with a B and rhymes with rich. Um, you, you don't want to be viewed that way, but you don't want to be ignored. So you have to find the right way to communicate. And I'm just wondering whether if Neera Tandon were male, that anybody would be criticizing her tweets. What do you think? I think we all know the answer to that, right? And the answer is no, because Neera Tandon is being questioned by a group of senators, some of whom have sent tweets that certainly rival hers for snarkiness. And what really bothers me is it's not just Nira. There's also opposition to Deb Holland, who's immaculately qualified for interior. And when we get to justice, we're already seeing an ad campaign against Vanita Gupta, who's slated to be the associate, and Kristen Clark, who's slated to be the head of the criminal division. These are four very talented women. Ironically, something that they all have in common is that they are women of color, and I think that that plays a big role in this, you know, opposing one of those women might be something, a personal judgment. Opposing two, three, four of them, that's a pattern. And the pattern is misogyny and racism. I think that's absolutely right. And I'm so glad that you pointed out the fact that these are women of color really facing um, just a, a, an amazing and, and seemingly unprecedented uh, block of uh, scrutiny based on things other than their qualifications, um, bordering on opposition. And as a journalist for the last four years who have watched while members of Congress literally, uh, I called it um, tweetnesia, like I pretended to forget <laughs> everything that Donald Trump tweeted in an effort not to have to respond to it to the press, not to have to answer to it, not to um, have to address the way that Donald Trump weaponized his Twitter account against his political enemies, real and perceived, to suddenly now say, oh, well, we need decorum. And therefore, if you've tweeted something in the past that is objectionable, uh, that that will cost you your job. It, it's also, as anybody who spent some time on Capitol Hill we have heard elected members of Congress say things that are way worse than anything that Neera Tandon has ever tweeted. I mean, it is not a place for for gentle, docile language up there. So this idea that they have to keep that standard really is subterfuge for something that is much broader. And listen, the four of us as women in, in the legal profession have all faced sexism um, in real blatant ways. And, and you know, for me, I'm not sure if it was always the sexism or the racism or the misogynoir or a combination of them all. <laughs> but I'm sure we all have um, 
we all have stories about the sexism and uh, bias that we've that we've experienced in our jobs. I mean, I, I think I've talked before about the fact that every time I went to to the courthouse to argue uh, a case. I was a civil litigator. I was usually either asked if I was represented by counsel, by the court clerk, or I was, uh, folks tried to direct me to the criminal division because they assumed that I was a defendant. One of my favorite stories is when I uh, was in my law office and an opposing counsel in a case showed up for a deposition and I went to greet him at the door and he looks at me and hands me a stack of papers and said, can you make two copies? (laughs) <laughs> and he assumed that, obviously, that I was a secretary. I, I'm sure you, I, I'm of the view that you shouldn't treat even a secretary that way, even if you uh, showed up at someone else's office. But I politely handed the stack of papers to our office assistant, who happened to have been white and male. Um, and then I turned back to the attorney and extended my hand and said, hello, I'm Kimberly Atkins. And of course, we'd corresponded by mail and, and also on the phone. So uh, all the color in his face left and he was truly embarrassed. Um, and hopefully he never did that again. But this is something that exists, unfortunately, uh, in the legal profession. And I experienced it all the way. What about you guys? What have you experienced? Yeah, same here, Kim. And, um, you know, I can I can think of similar uh, experiences. I can remember a time when I was going through a trial practice training program and um, someone told me that I needed to tone down my rhetoric, that I need to speak in a uh, softer voice. I needed to smile more. I came across uh, as the word that Jill used. Um, <laughs> and, you know, as a young lawyer, I found that very unsettling and I found it to be completely different from the feedback my male colleagues were receiving. And um, I can't help but think that it was uh, it was gender based. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think all of us have had to navigate and I hear young women lawyers ask this question, should I live in the world as it is or in the world as it should be? Um, Because I think all of us, when those situations occur and someone says something incredibly inappropriate or treats us the way you just described, Kim, um, we have to make these very quick calculations on our feet. Do I speak up? Do I just roll with it? Do I go with the flow? Do I? And how do I do it? You know, I have often found humor to be one way to disarm someone, and that can be helpful. There was a time when I was trying a case while very pregnant. Uh, I was very visibly pregnant, and it was a child pornography case. Um, And the defense attorney actually filed a motion to um, uh, exclude me as trial counsel (gasps) and on the basis of prosecutorial misconduct that it would engender undue sympathy for, I don't know, the victims, I guess, by seeing me pregnant in some way. Um, And the judge called us back into chambers. Uh, I think he wasn't quite sure how to handle it. And asked the defendant to explain his position, and he did. And then he looked at me and said, what's your position? Uh, And I said about this defense attorney who was on the heavier side, uh, I said, I won't make any comments about uh, defense counsel's weight if he doesn't make any comments about mine. And the judge (laughs) sort of chuckled and we moved on. Yeah, but, you know, it shouldn't come to that, right? And I I also don't want to body shame anybody, so I'm not proud of that really uh, in retrospect. But um, you shouldn't be put in those situations, but but we are and we do. 
And so I think, you know, in the same way we talk about people for crisis management planning, if you have to make the decision and figure out the the solution on the spot, you're probably not going to come up with a good solution. In the same way, you know, we teach our kids to role play about when they're offered drugs, or at least this is the way, you know, my children roll their eyes at me. Um, You need to think in advance, how am I going to handle that situation when it occurs? You can't, you know, game out every situation, but thinking of ways to deal with it. Am I going to call them out? Or am I going to go along with it? And I think I, what I tell my younger self is I'd be a little braver and just say, that's just not appropriate. That's not appropriate uh, way for us to be talking about this. I'm a professional. Treat me like one and let's move on. I just wanted to follow up on some of the things that Barb said. Um, first of all, when she talks about it being different than how a male would have been commented on, I, I can give you one really blatant example. When I first joined uh, Jenner and Block uh, as a partner, there was an associate evaluation right after I had joined when I didn't know any of the associates. But the other female partner asked me to come to the meeting and to particularly watch out for how male and female associates were being evaluated. And sure enough, the men were aggressive. The women were that same B word, with, rhyming with rich, uh, for the same behavior. There was no question that things that were lauded in the male associates were viewed as negatives in the female. And I can remember once calling my best friend from Russia where I was working on a deal and my translator told me that the other side thought I was mean. And that really hurt my feelings, made me feel horrible. And I called her almost crying saying, what should I do? And she said, are you kidding me? You're negotiating. You want them to think you're mean. What else would you want? And she was right. I mean, it was it was true. But in my stories, because I am clearly the oldest here, I go back to an era when, of course, every time I walked into court, the clerk would say, whose secretary are you? I would be asked to get coffee at any meeting where people didn't know that I was the lawyer. I was told when I got to law school that I was taking the place of a man who would die in Vietnam, and I'd never practiced law anyway, and I shouldn't be there. When I went for job interviews, I was asked what kind of birth control I used, how many children I plan to have. I'm not kidding. I can see your reaction, guys. It's true. (laughs) And going to your question, Barbara, of how do you respond to that, you have to think really fast. Back then, I had no female colleagues that I could brainstorm this with. And eventually, I did start thinking about in advance. But mostly, it just depends on the situation. And one of the things that I found, like you, humor helps. And then sometimes you have to say, look, my goal is to win whatever it is, either the lawsuit or to get a policy passed when I was general counsel of the Army. And so you take an approach that leads you to getting done what you want to get done, even if it means sucking in some really horrible, insulting, sexist comments. When Judge Sirica said, while I was cross-examining one of the defendants, now, Mr. Mardian, don't you know you can never win an argument with a lady? And that was when I was really doing a great job of cross-examining and getting him to be mad at me so that the jury would see how mean and evil he was. I didn't say anything because you can't. When a judge stood when I came into chambers, I didn't criticize him. I smiled and you know walked in. So I think you just have to take a different approach each and every time that that happens. And unfortunately, 
It is still happening. Um, there is some good news on this front, though. Um, the uh, military, the Pentagon, just announced new rules for female soldiers. They can now have ponytails. They can wear a light lipstick and neutral nail polish and stud earrings. So, and, you know, we can all laugh about it, but truly, they used to have to have a tight bun, and that got in the way of wearing a helmet. And so it oftentimes interfered with their vision. And this is something I know from when I said to the Army, you need to have female-designed equipment, because I did a parachute jump as a sort of test of how women were doing in training, and the helmet fell off because it was too big. They don't make, or they didn't then make them small enough for women. Wait, hold on. Before we go any further, and I want to hear what Joyce has to say, about, I, I just have to stop to say, Jill, if you, you've jumped out of an airplane in a parachute? <laughs> I, I went up with a jump team and watched them doing a tandem jump, which was so amazing. And I saw someone get caught and the jump master cut the cord so that he could fall instead of being tangled. And after that, I said, I want to see what it's like. And so I did like a few hours of parachute training, and I jumped from a 30-foot tower. The first time, the helmet literally fell off. And so I violated the rule of jumping, which is I watched it fall to the ground. And the first thing you learn in training is never look at the ground because you will stiffen up as you land. You cannot look. You have to just wait till you feel it and then collapse into it. So I, of course, got hurt, but I said, I'm fine. I want to do it again. And the worst thing for me was you have to yell your name and rank from the tower and be heard on the ground before they'll release you to jump. And I thought it was unladylike (laughs) to yell loud. And so I wasn't heard for a while. That was, you know, one of those things you have to get over that it's, Ladylike has different definitions in the military. Wow. So I've actually got an air story. It's not as good as Jill's, <laughs> but as a young prosecutor, I was working with um, some agents on actually a pretty interesting drug kingpin case, a Dixie Mafia case. And they hadn't worked with a woman prosecutor before. There was a pretty big team of prosecutors. It was all guys. I was brand new, and I also had the albatross around my neck of being a judge's kid. My father-in-law was a judge. Everyone assumed that that was why I had gotten the job. So they were trying to figure out if I could do anything. Um, And this was when customs used to be an agency. Two customs agents took me up in a Vietnam-era helicopter to fly over an area where we were looking at some pretty um, involved drug trafficking that was going on. And I mean, this was a helicopter with no doors and they just stuck you in there with a helmet on. And that was how you did comms. We got up, we flew over and, you know, they kept saying things to see who I was. And one of the things that they said was the last time we did this, they shot at us. But don't worry, you know, we're we're pretty high up. We're probably OK. And so, so you figure out what they're doing to you. And on the way home, they said, do you want to fly? I didn't want to fly. I was terrified of being in a helicopter. I don't like flying anyhow. But of course I said, sure I do. Um, And so I did it for a little while until one of the guys very gently into my ear said, "Um, Joyce, you need to ease up on the stick at your right arm. You're actually taking us down. And I was so tense that in addition to doing what I was doing, my elbow 
was on some sort of a lever that came out was the, that was the lever you pressed to go down. But the great thing about it, I, I will say, and I will give them huge credit, they all became really good friends, and I know that they had to have their moment with me. Um, but because I had the support of the guys on my team, of the older, more experienced prosecutors, the agents gave me that that same level of legitimacy. And so something here that gives me a moment of hope is there are enough women like us who've been around for a long time, not just in the legal field, but in in other professions. I think we have to be really intentional and really deliberate about finding ways that we can support younger women and make sure that they don't have to deal with any of this nonsense. And Barb, that goes back to your point, right? Do you live in the world that is or in the world that you want to be? I think it's up to us to make it be the world we want it to be. This is the time to do it. Women have put up with this stuff for way too long. Yeah, I think I I know I feel an obligation. I'm sure you do as well to uh, to help the next generation, because I now feel much bolder than I did when I was young and uncertain of my place in it. And so um, I I, I feel this obligation to help women. And I also want to acknowledge, as you just did, Joyce, uh, the allies I had in uh, women who are my peers and older and also men. There were many men who were great allies who uh, did speak up when something was inappropriate. I had many men in law enforcement who uh, were incredibly professional and collegial along the way. So uh, I don't want to suggest that everyone out there is uh, a raging sexist, but there should be zero tolerance for sexism. And so until we get to that point, uh, I I plan to speak out against it. Should we move on and talk about voting rights and and voter suppression? Um, You know, so there's obviously no need to tell this group how important the right to vote is. And I think our listeners all understand that too. But what's going on in state legislatures right now, especially states with Republican majorities and supermajorities, is really pretty disturbing. According to the Brennan Center, which tracks these things, 33 states are considering new laws that would restrict the ability to vote more than it's already restricted. So Kim, why don't you talk with us a little bit about what's going on? Why are all of these state legislatures taking a step back? Yes. So we are seeing a lot of proposals for new restrictive voting laws. And they're coming at a time, as you pointed out, they are coming um, fast and furiously. And basically the argument there, the laws take different forms and there are different um, arguments. But right now they're, they're mostly largely coalescing in a similar way, which is to say, you know, after all of the disinformation and um, the big lie, frankly, that was pushed by Donald Trump and those who supported him. There is a lot of confusion and distrust in our election systems. And so in order to uh, allay the fears of voters, we need to show them that voting is secure and therefore we need to implement these restrictive voting measures. They include um, uh, voting ID requirements requiring requiring photo IDs, which um, has been shown to target poor people, people of color for whom it may be difficult to obtain uh, voter ID, I mean, uh, picture IDs or licenses. Um, they also cost money. So it can also be seen essentially as a poll tax. Uh, in terms of restricting early voting, of course, we saw early voting and mail-in voting as well. We saw those playing a crucial role during the pandemic to expand voting, to make it more available to people and allow them to vote more easily during a pandemic. 
and it was found to be uh, largely fraud-free. There is absolutely no evidence from the 2020 election of widespread voter fraud at all. So the idea that we need more security or to make it more difficult just doesn't make a lot of sense. So the political reality is uh, Republicans largely lost a lot of elections in 2020. The more people that vote, the more people who are likely to vote Democratic come out and they are, they are able to cast their ballots. So we're seeing a political effort um, to on the part of Republicans in states where they still control the legislature to try to roll that back and make it harder. But one thing I'm really concerned about is on Tuesday, the U.S. Supreme Court is going to be taking up a voting rights case out of Arizona. And we know that in 2013, the U.S. Supreme Court gutted a key protection for voting rights when they uh, threw out the preclearance formula uh, in Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. So what that meant was a lot of districts that had a history of voter suppression had to, whenever they changed their voting laws, had to submit those plans to the Department of Justice ahead of time to be pre-cleared before they can implement them so that the Justice Department can make sure that there was no shenanigans there. The formula to trigger that was thrown out. So that hasn't been used since 2013. And since then, there have been a plethora of new laws put into place in these very districts to try to restrict voting. Some of them have been thrown out, but some of them have remained in place. And so now um, there is a new challenge to Arizona's law, which in a sense led to uh, made it easier for um election officials to throw out provisional ballots that were coming from precincts outside of their own precincts rather than uh, holding them and and counting them later. And uh, the Democratic National Committee brought suit basically saying, look, throwing out those provisional votes are really having an impact mostly on Black and Brown voters. And they claim that it's violating Section 2 of the Voting Rights Act, which uh, prohibits uh, racial discrimination, essentially, in voting. This is a harder case to make because this puts the burden on the plaintiffs, on people who are complaining about this, as opposed to putting the burden on the states who have this history of voter suppression to show that that's not what they're doing. So I'm worried that before the Supreme Court, which has already gutted a key part of the Voting Rights Act, that this case will allow many more restrictive voting laws to be put in place and really get the okay from the highest court in the land. And I'd like to hear what what my sisters have to say about this. So so before um, y'all say anything, can I just uh, say guilty as charged, Shelby County, the case that gutted the Voting Rights Act, came out of my district. And something that's always stuck with me is that in the dissent, Ruth Bader Ginsburg said, why would you want to throw out the Voting Rights Act saying that it's worked so we don't need it any longer? That's like tossing out your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're still dry. And Kim, everything that you say drives that home. Jill, Barb, what do y'all think? So obviously the preclearance might not have worked so well in the last four years anyway, because I wouldn't have trusted that Justice Department to say that a proposed change was unconstitutional because they didn't have the same view of voting rights. I think some of the laws, and you, you know, Kim, you mentioned Arizona, their proposed change in voting rights would basically say 
doesn't matter what the people say. If the uh, Secretary of State wants to have a different winner, that's who the winner will be. We cannot allow these to happen. Um, Mark Elias and the Democracy Forum are on top of all this and will be bringing, I'm sure, lots and lots of lawsuits. That's what we will need. There is... um, There is a new day coming because we now have a new Department of Justice that will protect these rights and that won't agree to the changes. But ultimately, you've hit on a real problem, which is it's going to end up being up to the Supreme Court. And the current configuration of the Supreme Court does not make me feel cheered about the likely outcome. So I think we're going to have to, in every state, watch this and then also look at What can the federal government do to pass voting rights uh, and to get us, you know, into a place the John Lewis Voting Rights Act needs to be passed? Um, And I think there's a lot more that the federal government is going to have to take on to stop what are, unfortunately, this isn't a, uh, shouldn't be a partisan issue. But if you look at the states that are trying to change their laws to eliminate early voting, to eliminate mail voting, to take away ballot boxes that are distributed across a a county, they tend to be states that have Republican governors and Republican legislatures. And so the Democrats are going to have to do something to protect voting rights, which will include starting to pay more attention to the election of Democratic governors and Democrats in the state houses, in state legislatures. That's the only thing I think that's going to work right now. Well, Jill, as you said, I I, I don't know that I agree with that. I do agree that um, voting access should not be a partisan issue. I would hope that whoever is uh, in a governor's office understands that access to voting is instrumental to democracy. Here in Michigan, um, in, in the last few years, there was a ballot initiative, you know, voter led effort to make um, voting by mail, absentee voting, uh, no excuse base. And it was wildly popular. It passed by an overwhelming margin. And as a result, during the COVID pandemic, we had uh, a record turnout at, at in the polls because so many people were allowed to vote in advance and submit their uh, ballot either by mail or in a drop box. Um, but what I think we're seeing happen is uh, you know, we talk about the big lie as President Trump won the election because of uh, election fraud. The foundation for that big lie is the even bigger lie, which is that there is fraud in uh, in elections. And that is a lie that President Trump began even before he was elected in 2016. You remember he had that uh, he put together some sort of commission on election integrity yes. and, they, and they ended up disbanding within a very short period of time because they couldn't find any election fraud. It's because there isn't any. I mean, you know, there may be onesies and twosies here and there, but in terms of widespread election fraud, um, it isn't an issue. What is more common, I I have worked in the past on election day uh, on voter protection initiatives and just helping people make sure they're in the right place to vote. Um, What happens a lot is people who only vote every four years in a presidential election, for example, show up to the wrong place on election day. Uh, And so, you know, this this initiative in Arizona that says we're going to throw out the whole ballot if they voted in the wrong place, their vote for president and uh, uh, U.S. senator and all these other things should stand right if they're in the Mm -hmm. wrong place. And so they voted in the wrong election for city council rep. 
that vote doesn't count, but everything else on the ballot should count, right? And so all of these laws about eliminating the ability to vote in advance um, and f- showing a photo ID, it's all designed for one thing. It is to suppress the vote. You mentioned Mark Elias. I exchanged some emails with him in preparation for this uh, conversation. Um, and one of the things that he has said publicly is um, the only reason we're seeing all of these uh, bill uh, ballot proposals, legislative proposals and bills in Georgia is because it's being advocated by people who don't like the outcome. They had two senators who are Democrats get elected. And what's their response? Not let's uh, energize our party and our ideas, but let's make it harder <laughs> for people um, who won't vote for us to cast their ballot in the first place. That is antithetical to democracy in America. We should be working to make it easier to vote, not harder to vote. And all of these things that put up these obstacles are designed for one thing, and that is to advantage uh, the Republican Party over the Democratic Party. So I think it's really interesting that the two states that we've mentioned, Georgia and Arizona, are both states that are in the middle of a rapid demographic shift. And in fact, by 2026, they'll be majority-minority states. That's not lost on Republicans, most of whom don't say it out loud, but former President Trump actually did say it. Uh, out loud during the campaign when he was talking about the COVID provisions that made it easier for people to vote. And he said, this is crazy. If too many people can vote, Republicans will never win another race. And that's really what's at stake here. This is about politics. And you know, who, who you choose on your ballot, sure, that's a political decision. But whether or not you can vote, that's quintessentially American. Without a right to vote, we would not be the country that our forefathers uh, aspired to build. And hasn't that always been the story of America making it possible for more people to vote? Women, protests in the civil rights movement that expanded voting rights for Black people, now movements to let immigrants and other people vote more easily. I mean, that's something that we should all be fighting for, no matter what party we belong to. It is absolutely such a crucial civil rights issue. I have to say, um, I too am a, a Michigan native like Barb, and one of the lasting images of the last election that really broke my heart was seeing um, the vote being counted in Detroit, my hometown, uh, and seeing the crowd that was almost entirely white standing outside uh, saying, stop the count. Detroit is the blackest major city in the United States by population. And that fact just tells you everything you needed to know about that moment. But I want to move on to another big civil rights issue, which is policing reform. And next week, the House is set to vote uh, again on the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. And I just want to highlight a few things that this law does. It will prohibit federal, state and local law enforcement from racial, religious and discriminatory profiling. Um, And it will also require law enforcement to collect data on investigatory activities. That's so important because when we talk about policing and racial profiling, there is no national clearinghouse for data. So we really don't even know the extent to which it happens because police departments aren't required to say. It'll ban uh, chokeholds. It'll ban no-knock warrants, both for federal law enforcement and also incentivize state and local Uh, law enforcement agencies to ban those practices too. Uh, It won't cover them directly, but it'll incentivize uh, through funding uh, those 
um, lo- state and local authorities to uh, stop those things. And one thing that is really crucial is that it will make it easier to prosecute offending officers by amending the federal criminal statute that prosecutes criminal misconduct. It'll change the requirement uh, in um, Section 242 to be amended from willfulness to recklessness. And I want to throw to uh, Barb on this as a former federal prosecutor to talk about why that police misconduct willfulness standard being changed is so important. Yeah, I think that is one of the critical provisions in this bill. Um, Currently, it requires willfully, and that comes from a 1945 case called Screws versus the United States. Um, It's a predecessor statute, but 242 is the statute that federal prosecutors use to prosecute police officers who deprive uh, citizens, residents of their constitutional rights, such as through excessive force under what is known as color of law, you know, their badge, their authority as a police officer. And it requires that it be done willfully. And willfully has been interpreted to mean uh, an act that it was done with the specific intent to do something that the law forbids. So it is such a high standard that it becomes virtually impossible for uh, federal prosecutors to charge and convict a police officer because the case law says things like um, bad judgment, um, uh, inherent bias, uh, mistakes, poor training. Uh, None of those things are relevant unless you can prove that the person had the specific goal of depriving the person of their constitutional rights. And I, I just don't think that uh, it's realistic to think that that's actually what happens on the ground, that a police officer is thinking, how shall I deprive this person of their constitutional rights unless it's a deliberate assassination? Um, and nor can a prosecutor prove that. Now, on the other hand, I don't think you want to completely eliminate any sort of mens rea, nor could you under the law. You have to um, uh, show that the person did something that was unlawful and intentionally so. But by changing it, to knowingly or with reckless disregard, I think you will capture some of that wrongful behavior, but also giving police officers the leeway that they need when they make honest mistakes. I mean, we don't want to have police officers so afraid to do their jobs that they won't uh, use appropriate force when it's necessary to protect their lives or the lives of others or sign up to be a police officer in the first place. So it's a very modest change, but I think it reflects the reality and it will enable prosecutors to convict people whose conduct is wrongful without requiring that standard that is proved unworkable in practice. You know, I think Barb makes a really good point here. Um, and not to dig too deep into the details, but in the Screws case, part of the conduct involved is the, the um, law enforcement officer who's charged is dragging this guy through the police station, sort of bouncing his head on a concrete floor. And the court decides that that's not an intentional deprivation of constitutional rights. The standard is so high in these cases, and, I, and, and we prosecuted a lot of these cases during my tenure as U.S. attorney, uh, not involving deaths, but involving the use of excessive force. The debate every time we went to indictment review wasn't, did this police officer do something wrong and did he know it was wrong at the time? It was always can we prove that he intended to deprive constitutional rights? And so the last case that we tried involved um, a a grandfather who had come from India to help his son with a new child. And the grandfather weighed about 100 pounds soaking wet. And he was walking through the neighborhood one morning. 
it is apparently customary in India to look into windows. And he was looking into a garage. Uh, Somebody in the neighborhood called it in. Police officers showed up and they approached him and said, show us your green card. And his response was, I don't speak English. And the, the police officer in this case weighs about 250 pounds. He ultimately body sweeps the grandfather, a prohibited practice, partially paralyzes him. We try the case. The jury hangs not once but twice. That means we can't get a unanimous verdict and the judge won't let us try it a third time. Look, there's just no question on these facts that that was an excessive use of force by this police officer. It is important that we protect the ability of police officers who make split-second decisions in, in dangerous situations, dangerous to them personally and to the people around them, that we preserve their ability to act. But this was not a good-faith law enforcement effort by this officer And this change in the law would have made it possible to convict in that case. So I think this is a great development. These are all great points, but I'd like to uh, maybe focus on uh, two other parts of this law that I think are really interesting. And one is that it will allow easier uh, lawsuits by people injured and families of people injured uh, because it will take away the qualified immunity that police officers now have. But the other is really a part of what I think is really important in government, which is transparency. And this will create a national registry called the National Police Misconduct Registry to compile data on complaints and records. You cannot establish a uh, pattern and practice lawsuit against a police force unless you have this data. And I can speak from experience in Chicago where the police union contract said that after five years, any misconduct reported had to be erased. Well, it's very hard to establish a long-term pattern in practice if someone does something in year one and year three and maybe year four, and then it's wiped out. Um, and so this would, uh, the new, um, the, the decision in Illinois was to abolish that and to require that they be kept permanently. And I think that that's an important part of this law that may not be as sexy as some of these other parts, but it is important to protecting the rights of citizens and at the same time protect, protecting police officers. Uh, because I think Barb and Joyce have both made the very compelling point that police have to make split-second decisions, sort of like what we were talking about with women having to make split-second decisions on how you respond to a horrible sexist comment. Um, and they need to be protected in that. But when you have a case of a 200-pound police officer slamming a 100-pound person who says, I don't speak English, you need to be able to prosecute that. And you need to have that record so that if he does it again, you know that he's done it a second time. Yeah, and I think uh, those are really great points. And I also think about the point with this legislation that if it passes, it will help bring a sense that justice can be done in these cases Um, as not just a recovering attorney, but also a person of color. I can speak uh, from personal experience to say that every time we see another one of these awful stories of someone being killed at the hands of police in this really awful way, we almost expect 
the police officer not to be held accountable in any way. But when that actually happens, that compounds the trauma. And this past week was particularly traumatic for a lot of reasons. There was hope because we saw the DOJ ramp up its investigation in the George Floyd case against uh, Derek Chauvin, the, the former Minneapolis police officer whose who was whose video the video of his knee on the back of the neck of George Floyd really changed um the entire conversation about policing reform um but it was sad because it was the one year anniversary of the murder I call it a lynching because it was the closest thing to that that I've seen of Ahmad Arbery the jogger in Georgia who was hunted down on a suburban street in Georgia in the middle of the day um, and shot dead. And we also got news out of New York that the police officers uh, who were involved in the death of Daniel Prude, the the man who was suffering from a, a psychological emergency and was grabbed by police, had a mesh bag put over his head and held down on the street until he was unconscious and he passed away some days later, that there would be no charges brought in that case. And every time that happens, it breaks down the trust in communities of color in the police. And that too puts police um, more in danger. I remember being a journalism student in New York and doing a ride-along with police at that time. And some. Um, this was not long after the Amadou Diallo case. And they said that the lack of trust from members of the community made it so much harder for them. They used to know from being able to talk to people in the neighborhood who the people they were, uh, who they saw on the street were. They knew, okay, well, that's a good kid. He has a brother who is in some bad stuff, but the mother is really worried about this young kid, really wants him to go to college. We want to make sure that he's okay. But if the community stops talking to cops, that kind of community policing can't take place and they approach everyone like a suspect. It puts everyone in danger and it's really hard. What do you think, Barb? Yeah, I also want to speak about the um, the dishonesty that goes on with some of the rhetoric, this us versus them, that it's police versus community when um, we see people, you know, r- politicians who want to run on a law and order platform um, and attack others who want to improve policing as somehow being anti-police. There's nothing anti-police about wanting to improve constitutional policing for the reasons you just said, Kim, that police officers know they need the trust of the communities they serve if they're going to be effective. If they're going to get tips from the community, they need to be trusted. If they're going to be safe when they're out on the streets, they need to be trusted. I'm part of a, a, a foundation, a board member uh, that has put out uh, some grant proposals to police departments to work on some of these issues. And the response by police departments in Detroit and Metro Detroit has been overwhelming because police departments want to get better. They want to have the trust of the communities they serve. So they want things like training on excessive use of force and uh, community uh, reconciliation, uh, uh, citizen oversight. Um, in Detroit, we had a pattern and practice consent decree with the Detroit Police Department. And the police chief, James Craig, will tell you that that department is better today than it was before then uh, because it has better practices, better policies, better training, uh, and the result is uh, better community trust. Can, can I just echo what Barb is saying about how much law enforcement wants this Birmingham was one of six pilot cities in a program called the National Initiative for Building Community Trust. 
And it was a, a program with three pillars. It involved training police on procedural justice, on implicit bias, and then working on community reconciliation to rebuild broken communities. And so after Birmingham had gotten about two-thirds of the way through the program, the police chief, A.C. Roper, and I did a presentation statewide for law enforcement agencies, for police and for sheriffs. And and we went into it thinking, you know, this is not going to be well-received by some of our small agencies in more rural parts of the state, but we're going to do it anyhow. We're going to expose people to it. And Chief Roper is an amazing guy. And at the end of the presentation, he asked for questions. And a whole bunch of people shot their hands up all at once and immediately. And the questions were all the same. How can we get the pilot program in our jurisdiction? They all wanted it because they knew it would make their department stronger. They could serve their communities better. So I think you're dead on the money. This is something that police are are hungry for. I hope that the Biden Justice Department will advance programs like this and, and rebuild those relationships of trust that have been shattered. Let's turn now to questions. You can send your questions to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet at us using hashtag sistersinlaw, and we'll try to answer them during the show. If we don't get to your question during the show, we will try to answer as many as we can on our Twitter feeds during the week. Let's start um, with this one. It comes from Robert in New Orleans, Louisiana. He says, I have only a layman's understanding of RICO charges and prosecution strategies, But could former President Donald J. Trump be charged and convicted under RICO? Joyce, Jill, what do you think? Anything is possible. I'd like both you and and, uh, Joyce to talk about the current policies at DOJ. Uh, The advantage of RICO is the damages are quadrupled and you get a much better outcome. And all it requires is that there be a conspiracy with some actual overt acts in support of that. And so it is definitely possible because I can think of a lot of crimes that were committed as part of a conspiracy. So I think so, but I think there are some hurdles in terms of whether DOJ would approve bringing such a prosecution. Yeah. And there are some additional elements, you know, of course, RICO was passed uh, in an effort to attack organized crime. And so it requires an enterprise which, uh, you know, it can be an individual or a group or an association. So you could charge Donald Trump or others that he was working with. And you have to show that there's a pattern of racketeering activity. A pattern just means two or more different crimes. And racketeering activity is defined in the statute to include a number of different crimes. But many of them include things like bribery, fraud, extortion. And so if the facts fit, um, I I think there's a potential for a charge there. But as you just said, uh, Jill, just because you can charge under the RICO statute doesn't mean uh, that you should. And DOJ has some policies that restricts when it can be used. I think that's right. And and let me just put a pin right now in the fact that one of the predicate offenses for a RICO charge is money laundering, which may or may not have taken place here. Um, And that a corporation can be a RICO enterprise, not just an individual or a loose confederation of people. But if there's corporate wrongdoing with more than two predicate acts in in the space of 10 years, then that could sustain charges. But like everyone has said, the real drag on seeing RICO used here is this um, deference at DOJ that says it's sort of a restraint that says RICO should only be used in a cases where the underlying crimes, prosecutions for the underlying, whether it's bribery or kidnapping or whatever it is, 
wouldn't serve the interests of justice sufficiently to see justice done. And a, a U.S. attorney can't just bring RICO charges on their own. They actually have to go to the criminal division in Washington and get approval. So it is a complicated process. As Jill said, possible, but I wouldn't bank on it just yet. All right, let's move on. We've got another question from Karen, and I might direct this one at Kimberly. Can you explain the history of the filibuster, the ways it has been used and abused, and the pros and cons of potentially abolishing it? Yeah, so that's, uh, of course, a very ripe issue right now. In the Senate, they are considering whether or not to abolish the filibuster Democrats. Some Democrats are really pushing for that. Um, Republicans, including Mitch McConnell, are saying that they don't want it. You know, uh, this question is interesting because for so long, I thought about the filibuster as a good rule, as something that would, by requiring 60 senators uh, to agree to to move on, um, to, uh, to move legislation forward, that it's a way to to push for um, more consensus, more bipartisanship, particularly with things like confirming judges, right, so that we wouldn't have uh, such partisanship in the judiciary. But when I went back and looked at some of the history, it became really clear that the filibuster um, was not really used very much throughout history until it came time for civil rights legislation. And in that point, Southern uh, members of the Senate would use it to try to block civil rights legislation from passing. And they were um, largely successful at doing that. It required this supermajority to move to something called cloture, which is essentially ending debate on a, debi- on a bill so that they could vote on it. It would never reach that point because Southern lawmakers would you even when they were in the minority, would use that power to block it. And in fact, um, a filibuster was attempted on the Civil Rights Act of 19, uh, in 1964, of the, the major Civil Rights Act that forms the basis of so many of the civil rights laws, the civil rights protections that we enjoy today. So it was really enlightening. Um, it really was never used as a tool of reconciliation, as a tool for bipartisanship. It's been used as a tool for obstruction. So that, me personally, changed my view on it, and I think that it probably needs to go. What, what do you think, Joyce? In fact, the longest filibuster ever in the Senate was 24 hours and 18 minutes conducted by South Carolina's Strom Thurmond Mm. in an effort to block the Civil Rights Act of 1957, an Eisenhower piece of legislation that preceded what what we now think of as the Civil Rights Act and, and its key pieces. But that's precisely what its history has been. And I think we see that being borne out in, in modern times. Um, this is a topic that we should discuss in more detail because I think we're going to see it cropping up more and more over the I next agree. few weeks. I agree. All right. And we've got one last question. This one came from a lot of different sources. Krista in Chelsea, Michigan at Blue Jinx. Mark in Jerusalem and Joe in Plymouth, Massachusetts, all asked a variation on this question about uh, Cy Vance now has not only access to witnesses, but he has documents. He's had much of this for some time, and now he has Donald Trump's tax returns and business records. Uh, what, uh, What can we expect next? Jill, let me direct that one to you. I think that people should not be anxious for immediate um, indictments that going through millions of pages of financial information is going to take time 
because you don't want to bring a case that you don't have a very high probability of winning a conviction. And I think that that requires a lot of details be developed. The information may or may not prove, uh, you mentioned earlier, money laundering, bank fraud, insurance fraud, tax evasion. Um, you know, I started my career in organized crime, and the, the most famous case of tax fraud was uh, Al Capone, and we couldn't get him on uh, murder and other crimes that he was known for, but he was brought down on tax case. So there's a very good chance, and there's live testimony from at least Michael Cohn, his former lawyer, and possibly there are people from within the Trump organization uh, who are testifying and working with Cy Vance. So I think there is a chance that this will lead to some sort of criminal indictment. But I think it may take a little longer than people are thinking. They think, well, he got it. And they also think that people will see those tax returns. No one will see those tax returns unless they are produced as part of evidence in a trial. They were given to the grand jury. That is secret. And no one outside of the prosecution and the grand jury will see them unless they are evidence in a courtroom. Joyce or Kim, anything to add on the Syvance documents? So I think Jill is exactly right when she says we shouldn't think something will happen quickly. This is a million pages of documents. I think that Cy Vance's team, and you know, he's brought on a former Southern District of New York prosecutor with expertise in complex financial cases. He's hired an outside forensic consulting firm, not things that you do if you don't think that you've got a good case on your hands. But at the same token, the government has an obligation to go through all of this material to make sure that there's nothing exculpatory, nothing that's an excuse for this conduct. They would actually have to turn that over to defendants. And although often we hear the Vance investigation discussed as though its only target is the former president, there's actually a pretty wide array of potential defendants, the president's children, employees of his business, perhaps people who helped prepare returns or obtain loans. So Cy Vance will have to go through this complicated dance prosecutors do of deciding who's going to be a witness and who's going to be a defendant. And that's where this case might have the potential to reach the president or the former president or those close to him. It will be through the narrators who give life to this million pages worth of documents. Jill references Al Capone. I always really like to have an accountant as my narrator because they could explain yeah. what happened, who knew stuff, who was driving the truck, right? You have to know what people intended. So you have to know if, in fact, values were being adjusted for taxes or to get loans in favorable ways. Who was directing that? Little bit of work ahead of Cy Vance, but I think we'll ultimately see indictments. Yeah, I think my sisters are exactly right on that, both in the timing uh, and the scope, that this won't just involve the president, that this can involve uh, a lot of people around him. Just a reminder, I think most of our listeners know that this is just one bit of ongoing litigation uh, in both civil and criminal courts that involved the president, that could touch the president, that we will be watching and we will be updating all on uh, every week in our podcast. And Joyce, just to be clear, no relation to Cy Vance? <laughs> Despite the internet rumors that we're married or twins or whatever people come up with, no, no kin. 
Yeah, I, no kidding. I love it when Joyce talks Southern. Um, I saw somewhere on Twitter when you uh, you tweeted something about uh, you know Cy Vance getting these records and you know that this was uh, a, a, a case you'd have your eye on. Someone uh, you know accusing you of bias with your family member. I had to chuckle at that. So no relation, <laughs> folks. Joyce Vance. No is pillow objective. talk. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I think this is a significant development, though, as uh, as you all know. Uh, financial records are the key to any sort of white collar or fraud case. Uh, you have to have the numbers before you can put anything together. So really critical thing. And we heard Michael Cohen testify before Congress that President Trump had a habit of playing loose with his numbers, that when he wanted something like a loan, he padded his revenues to make them look high. When he wanted to avoid tax liability, he made the numbers look low. And so you can't have it both ways. And so one thing that I'm sure investigators will be looking at is whether for the same tax year, he's using the same number when he had different purposes. And so that could be, uh, you know, one of those situations where uh, you either committed fraud or, um, tax violations, but you you can't have the same different numbers on the same documents. So it'll be really interesting to see how that plays out. And when you talk about the scope of it, um, one of the real key issues has been whether three quarters of a million dollars paid as consulting fees to daughter Ivanka was a legitimate expense that could lead to something major. And And Barb, you just mentioned the financial records, which I think people forget, they are focused on tax returns. But really, the tax returns are sort of clean documents. In order to understand them, you need to see the books and records that underlie them, the memos, the emails that were exchanged about how to record certain things. And that's what's going to really lead to a uh, prosecution decision, I think. All right. Things for us to keep our eyes on as the weeks unfold. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Joyce Vance, Jill Weinbanks, Kimberly Atkins, and me, Barb McQuaid. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using Hashtag Sisters in Law. You can find the links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, please subscribe to Hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please consider giving us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. When I first started trying cases in Michigan and Detroit, um, one of the agents who worked for me, I, I was having trouble linking with because I'm not a big drinker and they'd all go drinking and I'd you know, I would order a slow gin fizz and be laughed at. I never had that problem with my agents. <laughs> but but he was a flyer. And so he said, want to go flying? And so I actually went up and flew with him. And then Not when after I was general- the slow gin fizz. <laughs> he wasn't drinking slow gin fizzes. I did learn to drink beer. That was sort of my way of being one of the guys. But um, I did take a helicopter controls. I had taken um, uh, a, a bigger plane, a Mohawk. And the pilot had said to me, oh, we're at 30,000 feet. There's nothing you can do that I can't fix before it's too late. So I felt really confident flying that plane. And when I came back out of the cockpit, you know, I sort of said, well, so how was everything, guys? And nobody had noticed that I had had control. So then I got cocky. And when they asked me if I wanted to take the helicopter, and it was a Blackhawk, which has a glass bottom. uh, So you're really aware of how close you are to the ground. 
I didn't last more than a few minutes. And I said, please take this back. I, it was just too scary wow. to, to see how close to the treetops you were. Wow. So, yeah, that was lots of fun. My criminal there. chief actually got a picture of me in the helicopter with that big um, helmet on my head. Yes. And when I left the office, one of the things that they did was they made a photo montage. I didn't even know the photo existed. And that was the first one they showed. And of course, <laughs> oh. all the young people in the office, you know, the brand new AUSAs, they were like. <laughs> so I tried to get a picture of me doing ejector seat training as part of my <laughs> book, but they wouldn't put that in. But that, mm-hmm. that was, I also flew in, I can't think of the name of the plane, but it's an intelligence plane and it does really, it goes really low to take quick pictures. And then it does a circle upside down to get out of being that mm-hmm. low. And when they tell you, you don't know you're upside down in a plane, that is bullshit. You know, <laughs> you are upside down. There's no way. And I, it, it was, uh, and that was, I get, I can't remember where I did that. But I also did a, an overflight in um, near North Korea because no. Army was changing what it thought the troop strength was of North Koreans, and Carter wanted to withdraw troops. And so I was sent to see whether they were playing with the intelligence numbers or not. And so they took me up to observe this. And um, that's scary because if they make a wrong move into airspace, right. <laughs> you know you'll be shot down. But right. Yeah, wow. It was fun. Jill has lived a very interesting life. Yes. Such an interesting more about life. This. 